0: Scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Joshua, chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. It's Joshua 22, verses 1 through 6. Then Joshua called the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not left your brethren these many days up to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brethren as as he promised them. Now therefore return and go to your tents and to the land of your possession, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But take diligent heed to do the commandment in the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Good morning, Church.
1: need to borrow just a minute from you this morning to extend my deepest gratitude. Your uh, prayers, calls, texts, cards, visits um, have surrounded me and uplifted me this week, so thank you so much for those of you that um, really reached out and helped our family this week. Uh, Friday night, a week ago, I was sure that I was the next victim of the stomach flu, and as Saturday progressed, and I... uh, uh, continued to feel more and more pain and flopping my legs back and forth in the bed as I survived the cold chills, I was certain I was going to throw up and uh, nothing 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 all day and about three a m on Saturday morning or Sunday morning, I started googling appendicitis and uh, after a solid forty five minutes of googling and there 's some self tests at home if you need to know about those you can take um, By the time Sunday morning rolled around, we were uh, in the hospital. So uh, uh, thank you very much for those of you that have uh, uh, definitely prayed for me. I felt that, and I was uplifted by it. I want to also publicly thank Matt for jumping in so quickly to preach for me. Uh, Last week, I was supposed to preach last week. Boy, it's nothing like having your sermon written, and then just all week you're ready to go, you know. (laughs) It's a great deal. The arc of our story this morning uh, that we're going to trace through and the last part of Joshua and Judges, the the arc of it, the, as we follow it, is going to be for the kind of people that are waging war in their Christian life, that are engaged in it, that are fighting. It's going to be for people that are frustrated, possibly. Going to be people for going to be for people who are maybe not all the way understanding why there is difficulty once you become a Christian, why there's spiritual battles that you go through. Uh, the storyline that we're going to follow today is for you. It's also for people that are not yet Christians that notice the disconnect between sometimes the promise of peace, yet the presence of challenge. And Maybe that scared you off from what Christianity really is, and hopefully we'll make some sense of that for you this morning, and maybe Christianity will come to a clearer light for you. So where we are right now, um, we're a week behind because uh, I'll be preaching from what you just read this week, so uh, we'll see what you came up with, we'll see what I came up with, and maybe we can compare notes, but Israel has just finished their 40-year journey, and they're finally coming into the Promised Land now. And our text that Don read for us is the conclusion of round one of the settlement of the land, the Promised Land, the land of Canaan. Um, They've come in, and Joshua now is telling the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh to go ahead and go head back east, cross over the Jordan, and go back to the land that they inherited originally. They were the first groups to get some land, and yet they were commanded by God to go with their brothers across the Jordan and help them conquer the rest of the land of Canaan. And once they did that, they could go back to their own land across on the east side of the Jordan, and enjoy that. God had finally come through and brought this nation Israel to the land. And he given them what he had promised. If you notice carefully, there was a word that stands out in verse 4 when Joshua was speaking to these leaders of the tribe when he says, "...and now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers." You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, these first two and a half tribes had rest in their land. They conquered their cities, they pushed out some of the enemies, and now they had established their land, and they went over across the Jordan and helped the rest of their brothers do the very same thing. And now God says that they have in the land rest. This is an important word in the Hebrew culture, rest. If you're like me, my mind goes back to um, creation, The word rest, after the six days of creation, on the seventh day, the Bible says that God rested and instituted what the Hebrew word is, Sabbath. That starts all the way in creation, Sabbath. And that word rest means to cease, to completely stop what you're doing, to end it, to complete it. But this word here is not the Hebrew word for Sabbath, rest. It's a different word. This word is the word nuach, which means to be led into quiet peacefulness. It comes when you have deep trust in somebody else. You know when that anxiousness in your stomach finally goes away and you can just be yourself around somebody or maybe you can really trust them for who they are and you can trust them with maybe all of your thoughts and your secrets and your ideas and you can give them to them and you can trust that person. Is when all of that kind of comes about is when you have what the Hebrews called this version of rest, a peacefulness. It's sort of like if you you know, maybe move to a new place, you buy a new house, and those first few weeks or months are filled with just moving boxes and unpacking things and maybe taking on a few projects. And then finally, when your house feels like it's settled, you know, the pictures are finally hung. And when you go to bed at night, it actually starts to feel like your house and you're settled there. That's what this word rest is. Israel has been led by God into a peacefulness, a rest, that, that they are where they belong. So it's interesting. Things are right. There's a sigh of relief. And for the Christian, as you have to follow along with me as we, as we go through the story, we're going to bounce back and forth between what's going on in Israel and what the, anity, or the type for us is and the anti-type for us as Christians. For the Christian, this is the rest that I believe Augustine spoke about when he said that our hearts... Our hearts, our souls are never truly at rest until we find our rest in God. That's really what he's talking about, the same kind of rest. That stuff that makes us anxious in the world, the things that worry us, the deepest fears that we have when we finally come and find our deep rest in God. That's what he's really talking about, the very same thing that Israel is experiencing. What I believe it's like when you finally, after wandering in the wilderness, realize that God is who he is. And you become a Christian and you enter into that rest that you have now finally found God. This is indeed the experience of becoming a Christian, finding really what you've been looking for. And so, like Israel, they've established their nation, they're now in their land. It sort of feels like the story should be over, right? They've pushed out the enemies so far and now they have their cities and their nation is sort of built and. You know, It feels like the story should be over. It maybe should be coming to an end. If you were a script writer for a Hollywood film, you would most likely find your story having a conclusion at this point. You've had your climax as they've left Egypt. You've watched the struggle as they come to the edge of their land, and yet they just can't get it right at the beginning, so they have to wander for a long time, and you're not sure that they're going to ever actually come back into the land. And then they finally do, and God says, The land now, the nation has rest feels like it's over. It's completed. God has done his work. But it's not the end of the story. You know, what? something is so surprising is, is how quickly this change comes about. You see, immediately after they enter what God calls this rest, the fighting resumes. The wars continue. The presence of this rest that they were led to the place where they were supposed to be did not eliminate war from the nation of Israel at all. And what stands out to me, two things. First of all, from Joshua chapter 22 forward, all of Israel's history is filled with violence and wars and struggle and wrestling and nations and kings rising up to come and attack Israel and fighting continues to happen. And so what stands out to me is, number one, how quickly it happens. We're not going to leave the chapter We're not going to leave this, actually, this situation, and Israel's already prepared to be in war. And the second thing that surprised me is who they're at war with. Look in chapter 22, verse 10. It says this. When they came to the region of the Jordan, these are the two and a half tribes, the eastern tribes that are on their way back. When they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Now what happened was these two and a half tribes left and they were going all the way back east to cross over the Jordan to go back to their side and they got this bright idea that they would build this huge altar to remind the other people in Israel that hey we're still Israelites even though we're crossing back over the Jordan. That's what they were trying to do. Now I'm not sure they were supposed to do that but that was their intention and immediately When all the other people heard about it, what was the very first thing they wanted to do? They got together to make war. You see, from the very beginning, they were facing war. And these were not just enemies that were outside of Israel, but enemies within, they believed. And for the believer, this is so accurate in our spiritual warfare. This is exactly how it begins for us. Not only immediately, once we enter into this place of rest that Jesus says he offers to us, but also who the enemy really is oftentimes. It's not just nations outside of us. It's not just enemies outside of us, but most often it's the enemy within us. That's why two of the pieces of the armor, of the armor of God that we're supposed to put on have to do with guarding your heart and your mind. He says we're supposed to put on the breastplate of righteousness that protects your heart. And then he says to put on the helmet of salvation that protects your mind. That's where the battle is really taking place. In fact, immediately after Jesus was baptized and began his ministry, he was led out into the wilderness all alone, completely by himself. And was attacked by Satan in very crucial points in his mind and in his life. You see, James will put it this way in chapter 1, verse 14. He said, each one is tempted by his own desires. Each one is tempted by his own desires. You see, the spiritual warfare that we must enter into as we become Christians starts with an enemy not outside of us, but within us. Here's how this works. When you and I were created, we were created, the Bible says, in the image of God, from God. He is the source of life, and He breathed into all of us the breath of life. He made us living beings. He's that source. And when He made us, He created us with original, beginning, beautiful desires for good things. And as sin separates us from God, we still have those desires. And so we're like Israel, wandering around the wilderness in the desert, and like in most deserts, when people are wandering around and they're thirsty, they'll look out in the, de- in the desert. And when they're looking for water and there's not water, they'll start to see what they call mirages or a mirage. It looks like water. And they'll run to it and they'll begin to drink it and they find out that it's not water. Usually it's something like sand or something else that is not good for them. And that's exactly how it works for us. You and I have desires that were beautiful, that were given to us from God from the very beginning. And we learn through sin to satisfy those desires in some other place other than God. And those are the enemies with, from within. Let me give you a few examples. For instance, our, our hearts, our, our soul, our, uh, us as beings, were designed by God to want security. We want something bigger than us that is over us, that cares for us, that protects us from the very beginning. And even as we grow up out of the mommy and daddy phase in our life, we might act tough and act like we don't need that, but we all still long for a sense that my life is okay, I'm okay. Security. And what Satan does is he'll dangle opportunities and offers to us to make us feel secure that have nothing to do with God. For example, he can dangle the idea of money towards us. If you have enough money then you'll be okay. You'll be secure. If you have enough money, you'll be fine. And what that does to us is it makes us do certain things that are not healthy for us. Us longing for security, which is a beautiful, natural thing, can be led away from God to find a drink somewhere else. And so we might do things like neglect our family in the name of finding security and defend ourselves for it. We might do things like compromise our beliefs. For that security. We might do things like change our minds and say we're gonna pursue a different career just because there's a promise of security. All of those things are dangling promises from Satan where he's offering you the fulfillment of your desires apart from God, and you'll never be satisfied, you'll never be okay. For example, another one might be: your heart really wants acceptance. What the Bible calls righteousness in the very beginning. To stand before God and he says, I approve of you. You and I are connected and you're fine. I accept you. We all want that. Everybody wants to be accepted somewhere or you turn bitter and cold towards life. And so, what Satan promises us is that if we'll conform or abandon ourselves, we'll have acceptance. And this happens for young ladies. They're, They're told to conform their bodies to a certain image. And if they do that, they'll be accepted. And if they can't live up to that, maybe they can just turn over their body to somebody else. And if they give their body to somebody else, they'll get that deep longing of acceptance that we're all longing for. This happens in men when we try to walk around with masculinity and not being who we really are, but something else, trying to prove something so that we can have acceptance as we grow older, this doesn't really change for adults either. This is what drives us to maybe lie about ourselves, put on a show of ourselves, be different than who we really are, to try to get somebody just to accept us. Our hearts want that. Let me give you one last example. Every one of us designed and created by God were built by God to experience glory. We long for glory. We want that. We were made for that. And what Satan offers us is an alternative to God's glory that will never satisfy, but is really appealing. And what that is, is attention. He dangles attention in front of us and says, if you get attention, that will feel good. It'll be just like the glory of God. Now, glory is kind of a strange word. We've tried to explain it a few times. But what this means really is that you and I were built and designed for glory. What that means is we were designed to be in the presence of things that really matter, things that are most important, things that are substance. You and I were designed to be in the presence of God, but you were never designed to experience glory seated on the throne. And what Satan offers you is an opportunity to sit on the throne and pander for the attention of people as a substitute for the glory that you were supposed to experience in the presence of God. This is a massive epidemic in our world. We are addicted to attention. And what we're really made for is the glory of God. In fact, Peter would say it this way. If you really want to experience that, if you really want to know what it's like to be in the presence of something bigger than you, to be in awe of something magnificent, he says you ought to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you at the right time. But what Satan has offered to us is this little thing called attention, where if we get enough likes or enough retweets or enough, you know, like swipes on Instagram or something, that maybe we'll feel better about ourselves because we're getting attention for that. I'll never forget, I was talking a while ago to a young man who is a young adult right now, having a lot of challenges thinking about his career and what he should do, feeling a lot of pressure, and he's changing from one idea to another, and he was really thinking about it over and over. And I told him, I said, you know, I think, you know, our generation, maybe a couple generations older, have trained you to be afraid of this decision. From very early in your life, all eyes have been on you. And you've been taught to believe that the whole world is watching you. And has put the pressure of the world on you to make a decision about a career, a spouse. Because if you fail, what do we do to people in front of us that fail? Tiger Woods wasn't that long ago, was he? In 2008, when he failed, what did we do to him? We roasted him. What do we do to people that fail? We've taught a whole generation of young people that the eyes of the world are staring at you. And we've sold them attention as though it's going to satisfy them when there's the glory of God, that they can stand in His presence and be deeply satisfied. Do you see these wars that are within us that we've got to begin engaging and battling? This is the battle within. Satan is taking our desire for God And offering us substitutes. And if you want to know where you're most susceptible in your life, let me give you a couple things you can ask yourself. First of all, look to where you are most insecure in your life. You'll find where you're susceptible to these battles within, to finding something other than God. Second, look to where you are most secure in your life. And third, look to where you are gifted in your life, where you're talented. And in those three things, your insecurities, your securities, and your gifted, your talents, you'll find the opportunity probably to repent of making things other than God, God in your life. That's a battle that you've got to begin to engage. And that's exactly what Israel was doing as they began with the enemies who were within. Now look at the second one. Go over to chapter 23 and verse 6. He says, therefore, be very strong and keep. Uh, This is uh, Joshua's charge to all of Israel's leaders. He says, Therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day." And he goes on to say about how God has driven them out. So we not only have enemies that are within, but he also says we have an enemy that is outside of us. You see, there were other nations that were still around Israel that God was warning them to be careful with. These enemies that are outside of us. Now, a careful reading of this will really help us because the nations that were surrounding Israel, God was not telling them not to speak to them. Don't look at them. Don't don't, don't even talk to them. That's not what he was saying about that. God wasn't saying don't, you know, do commerce with them or learn trade secrets that you work. He wasn't saying that. There's a very careful word in verse 7 I want you to see. He says that you may not, my English standard says, mix with these nations. Mix. That word mix means to partake in the worship with someone else. To join them in what they are. Worshipping, And you see, this word right here, this, this word mixed, to join together in the worship of what somebody else is worshiping, does so much clarification for the war, the spiritual war that you and I are fighting in our lives. And if we'll understand this, this will give us crystal clear vision about how we fight this spiritual war. You see, anyone who is around you that is vying for you, vying for your attention, vying for your energy and who is not worshiping God is wanting you to mix with what they're worshiping. That's the fight. That's the challenge. So people that are around you, nations that are around you, enemies that are around you spiritually that are vying for your energy, your effort, your attention, your money, your time that are vying for those things. And if they are not worshipers of God, the warning is not, don't talk to them. The warning is not, don't, don't look at them, don't speak to them. The warning is, don't mix with them. Don't join in the worship of what they are worshiping. That's the warning. You see, we have all within us a need to worship something bigger than ourselves. And when we don't worship God, we will worship something. Most often what we worship in our culture is ourselves. And out of fear that people are worshipping a false god, so much evangelism happens to validate false gods. People want to bring you in to what they're worshipping. You see, people are constantly, how often do you feel this, wanting your attention, wanting you to focus on them? How often do you experience people wanting all of your time, energy, and money, and effort to go towards their causes, their interests, their ideas, their profits, their thoughts? They're wanting you to join together with them. People want you, in this fight It's constant. And once you have your heart aligned clearly with the worship of God, that He is your God and Him alone you will serve, you'll be empowered to listen to, to work with, to respect, to care for, to love people around you, but not need to worship the gods that they serve. And yes, there'll be some uncomfortable rubbing when you resist the worship they're trying to draw you into. Just imagine if you invited somebody to come worship with you today and they're like, no, I don't worship that God. It would be awkward, right? Slightly uncomfortable. And so when those around you are trying to draw you into worship something other than God and you hold your ground, there's going to be some discomfort there. That's the fight that you've got to fight. So we've got enemies within us and enemies outside of us that are trying to offer us the rest that God has provided, trying to offer us the satisfaction deep in us that God has already provided for us. But here's my question that I keep coming back to, is why? Why is this the case? I wonder when I was reading this, why God would not just work through this imperfect generation. He's worked through imperfect people all the time. And once for all, drive out every enemy that's there. I know they were imperfect and they were supposed to do it, but why didn't God just once for all bless all all generations of Israelites through this one group of people and just get rid of every enemy? Why did he do that? Why did he let war remain? I've thought of this often in my life. I wish this were possible that he could do it. Oh, I wish sometimes I could just step into the peace that I've seen older brothers and sisters have who have gone through the war. I wish that you and I sometimes could just step into the peace of the victories that other people have experienced. All the way back in our history up until now, there are older brothers and sisters in Christ who have fought the good fight and are experiencing the peace that comes by fighting on the side of God. And I wish we could just step into that. I know in my own experience there are times I just wish I, I almost barter with God sometimes when I have come face to face with my own sin and my own darkness and been willing to fight with God or let God fight with me and have victory there, I wish I could just give that to my children so that they could maybe just start a leg ahead, right? Just, just a little bit ahead. Parents in here who have older kids, have you struggled or wrestled with why maybe it seems like some of your kids step back and step up and step back? Why? Like Why can't we just give them the solutions that we've found? I've wondered that. Well, in Judges 3, I think, gives us an answer why this isn't the case. Judges 3 says this, 1 through 4. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel... "...might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, all who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal-Hermon, as far as Lebo-Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded the fathers by the hand of Moses." So why did God leave the nations? Why war, generation after generation? Why? God said, I left them there so that those who had not known war would learn war. You see, those who have not yet known war, who have not yet experienced war, would have to learn war for themselves. And through their own experience with war, they would learn not only who God is, but how to submit to him. There's a purpose in war. You see, all of life until we reach glory will be war. Becoming a Christian doesn't end war. Sometimes there's a portrait of Christianity like it's a war and then you become a Christian and then all the war stops. That's not really how it is. All of life until you and I get to glory is going to be war. Christianity doesn't end war. It just changes your side. And there's a truth that every individual must learn but can only learn through the experience of spiritual war, and that's this. There's a war that you cannot win and a war that you cannot lose. And those are the only two options. If war is inevitable, the truth is this. There's either a war you cannot win or a war you cannot lose, and you're in one or the other. Fighting on your own? Without the Lord, as proven through our reading and in our own experience, to be the fight that you cannot win, to strap on your sword and go into battle without the Lord on your side, facing the enemies within and the enemies without, you will not win that war. You won't. You'll constantly lose. But when God is on your side and you are submitting to Him and letting Him be commander-in-chief, listening to what He has to say, following His directions, fighting with Him the good fight, you're in a war that you cannot lose. You cannot. The great lesson, I believe, is learning to humbly submit, repent not just of our bad deeds, but of the arrogance that we have in ourselves that we can fight without God. And to learn that we're in a battle, we're in a war with spiritual warfare. And it's either a fight you cannot win or a fight you cannot lose. You see, like Israel, I, like Israel, God has clearly revealed himself as trustworthy. We can trust him to win. You see, in Israel's lowest state, when they were at their weakest point against an enemy that they could not conquer, God showed up and delivered. And same is true for us. In the condition when we were completely helpless, without any ability to fight for ourselves, in full submission to a master that was dominating us, sin, God again came for us. He became like us. He lived our life. He wore our flesh. He fought the fights that we fought. He dealt with the temptations that we dealt with. Jesus Christ lived and experienced and walked just like us. And a moment came when the cosmic power of all the world came into one moment in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus Christ walked into that war. And he fought for us. And he survived. Through the beatings, he fought. Up the hill, when he walked, he fought. Hanging on the cross, Jesus Christ fought. But, you see, his fight was a little bit different than what we can imagine in this day. You see, that day, Jesus fought not to stay alive, but Jesus fought to die. He fought every temptation. He fought every offer to escape dying. And he fought to stay there and die. And in going through that death, Jesus satisfied the holy justice of God and made a way for us to be reunited with the one who will finally satisfy every restless feeling you have in your existence. But Jesus didn't come just to make a way for us. He also showed us the way to life. You see, I think what most of us are really fighting, what most of us really end up fighting is not just the different bad things that we do or the evil deeds, but what we're fighting most often is to stay alive when we should be fighting tooth and nail to die to ourselves. And when we learn to die to ourselves and let the power of God reign in us, we'll finally begin to fight a war that we can always win because God's on our side. This is the journey of the spiritual life that I would like to invite every one of you to be a part of. And if any of this that we've talked about this morning was a little bit too strange or different or hard to understand. Um, The invitation when we say come as we stand and sing, what that means is come just means do something. Call me, text me, write a letter. We'll write back, do something. The come means do something and start fighting this spiritual battle so that you might win. Let's stand and sing.